This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we've got a lot to talk about today, but first and foremost, we're dedicating today's show to Razan An-Najjar, the medic in Gaza who is brutally murdered by a sniper, Israeli sniper bullet, and uh, yet another life was taken by the brutal occupation and apartheid forces uh, called the Israeli Defense Forces. This was yet another cruel, vicious assassination. There's no other way to talk about it. It is, and that's why we're dedicating this show uh, to her memory and uh, to talk a little bit about her, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Jess Razan Al-Najjar, or her full name is Razan Ashraf Abdul Qadir. El Razan. She was born September 11, 1996, and uh, she was killed by an Israeli uh, sniper June 1st of 2018. She is the eldest of six children born and raised in Gaza, and uh, she was a nurse volunteer, uh, volunteering for the Gaza Health Ministry. And she was a resident of Khuza'a in Gaza, a village near the border between Gaza and 1948 Palestine. Which I've been to, you know, a number of and times. And you've been there, that's why yeah. we want to talk, because you used to go a lot to Gaza to help in the Gaza mental health clinic, which we should talk a little bit about it. And she had her training as a paramedic in Khan Yunus at the Nasser uh, Hospital, which right. I'm sure you are familiar with. And uh, she became a member of the Palestinian Medical Relief Society, yep. a non-governmental health organization. She wore her white coat. Let, let's be very clear of, about of that. The medics. Let's be very clear about that, Jamal. She was identified as a medical provider, medical personnel, helping and being available in the case that the Israeli... IDF during this nonviolent march in Gaza for dignity and self-determination, if things were to t- turn violent, as, as the Israelis have done in each previous Friday for months, she was there as a medical provider, as a medic, as an EMT, as an emergency provider to help with the sick the injured, and those who may in fact have died. And yet she was targeted against international law, against every convention that we have in terms of these situations where medical providers are protected, have have an extra level of protection in these situations, clearly identified. And yet she took a bullet from a sniper and was killed and murdered in the line of duty. And on June 2nd, uh, 2018, a group of agencies at the United Nations in New York City issued a press release expressing their anguish over her death, calling her death a clearly, who, uh, and, and saying Al-Najjar was a clearly identified as a medical staffer, and it stated the killing of the nurse to be particularly reprehensible, this is according to yes. this, the UN envoy for the Middle East singled her case out for attention, tweeting medical workers are no target. But the Israeli military spokesperson recently, yes. there, there were two statements right. issued. Two contradictory statements, well, it seems. Two, uh, yeah, but uh, this is, you know, one, they said that her death was an accident, right. even though right. the very same spokesperson said that Israel knew where every single bullet was going to. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. This is the same person who said that Israel basically knows what what their soldiers are doing, basically. Then today I was looking and the spokesperson for one of the spokespeople uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu offer gentleman. He said that while she was acting as a human shield for Hamas. So imagine, imagine I don't the audacity in, in saying such a statement that here is uh, someone who is a medic 
who put her both, life on both the line. pictures, both pictures, still pictures and video show her raising her arms in the air, wearing her medics, she's wearing her coat, and yet they shot her through the chest. They shot and killed her through the heart. And yes. now they're saying that she was acting as a human shield. Well, Jamal, you know, that's the Israeli propaganda disinformation that they say every time they murder someone in Gaza, their go-to explanation, when they're called on the carpet, when they're, when they're caught lying, when they're caught on just flagrant propaganda, their go-to uh, bottom line statement is they're a human shield for Hamas. From that standpoint, then you would come to the conclusion that everybody in Gaza is a human shield, right? Because as it turns out, with impunity, the Israeli military fires, uh, has sniper fire into these defenseless individuals, you know, in their nonviolent protests. They use tear gas as a weapon, as a chemical weapon, and they use those so-called rubber bullets all in an attempt to create harm and destruction on the, on the civilian population. So I guess the logical conclusion for the Israelis is the entire 1.8 million Palestinians in Gaza are all human shields, right? This was tweeted today. Today he tweeted that she was being used as a human shield. <laughs> you know, that's why they shot her. The day before, they said it was an accident. Yes. And the day before that, they said they knew where each bullet was accounted for. So it seems like the Israeli Hasbara machine can't even, much like the Trump Hasbara machine, doesn't seem to be able to get their stories straight. And this is uh, his, uh, his entire statement, I'm, uh, and I'm quoting. This is what he said about her, and it's really incredible. Razan Najjar was not an angel like they made her out to be. Hamas puts her in front of the cameras and she boasts of serving as a human shield for those exploit even medical personnel to serve Hamas's terrorist purposes. This is what Offer Gentleman has said. Okay, I guess he could be working in the uh, either the White House press office or the Netanyahu press office. I think it's important, Jamal, to put this in a historical context not even that long ago, when we look at the war in Gaza, 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, anytime there has been a war or an incursion of military, uh, Israeli military forces directly invading Gaza, what they have done systematically and systemically is a target a medical personnel. It's well known that the Israelis target ambulances. They claim the ambulances are, you know, somehow magically ferrying weapons back and forth when there's no evidence to support that. They have targeted doctors. They have targeted nurses. They have targeted hospitals in Gaza. You know, Gaza, Jamal, you know, you've been there too. We've been there at the same time. Has a very fragile healthcare infrastructure. And yet each time there have been uh, uh, an attack in Gaza, they have gone directly for the hospitals. So they target, mili they target medical personnel, they target medical vehicles, and they target the clinics and the hospitals themselves. And yet they have the audacity with their husbara to try to say that somehow this, uh, this medic, this, this nurse-to-be, this really inspirational Palestinian young woman, Razana Najjar, uh, was somehow a human shield. Well, they're coming with all kinds of uh, different excuses, you know, yeah. uh, because they are they weren't expecting that uh, Palestinians would demonstrate peacefully, and they have been every Friday, every Friday, and so they're coming with different excuses. And we know the number over a hundred people were, have been killed. They're all unarmed. Most of them were killed by sniper bullets. They've been, uh, you know, shooting at them. Thousands, gas, inju thousands injured. Which we know that. And then, so they've been concocting these different stories that now, you know, now 
First, they were saying that those who were demonstrating were threatening Israeli soldiers because they were members of Hamas and they were trying to break through the fence and they were trying to 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 say that they were carrying weapons and they were trying to put uh, explosives near 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 the fence. This turned up to be all nonsense. Of course. And they've been killing children. They've been killing uh, journalists. How many journalists have been shot with full full view press written all over them, wearing the blue helmet, right. wearing, you know, uh, clothes that ident- clearly identify them as journalists. Now they're going after the medics. Imagine in full view, killing, you know, most recently Razan and Najjar, and first saying, first denying it, this is the right. system. Then, then they, they go on to say that this was an accident. And then finally, and then finally, they're saying, "Oh, she was, she was killed because she was, you know, a human shield." A human shield. Hamas sent her as a human shield. And today, if you look at every single day in the media, you find a whole different excuse. So, if today, if you look at the headlines about Gaza, you'll see that Israel and with this, uh, with Israel spokesperson Ofer Gendelman saying that uh, Razan and Najjar was acting as a human shield. Then, but also you find another story saying that Israel accusing Iran of fueling the recent violence on the Gaza border, that basically they've killed more than 100 Palestinians there. And, And today also, and the day before and yesterday, Israel military aircrafts dropped leaflets on Gaza warning Palestinians not to approach the border fence for their own safety. And so they they had the leaflets in Arabic telling them not to listen to Hamas. And the leaflets urged them, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here and quoting, saying that um, not to become a tool of uh, of Hamas. (laughs) You know, as if Hamas (laughs) controls the 1.7, 1.8 million Palestinians living there, can and we, they have a they have a say on everything that happens Jamal, on can the we, ground. I mean, the level of uh, ridiculousness, immorality, and outrageousness of the Israeli Hasbara propaganda machine—they've reached new depths of depravity. Jamal, let's keep in mind, and our listeners already know this, but we should never we should never hesitate to really contextualize Gaza. It's 1.8 million people. There has been a 10-year-plus blockade uh, in Gaza in terms of the free flow of material, uh, medical supplies, food supplies in and out of Gaza. There's a blockade. You know, unfortunately, Egypt and President Sisi have also enforced a regular blockade. So there cannot be the free flow of uh, trade, travel, food, water, or medicine from, uh, from Egypt. It is completely surrounded There is a blockade, as I said. Fishermen in Gaza are routinely shot and killed just by fishing. It is the largest open-air prison in the world, Jamal. Palestinians living in Gaza are captive. They can neither leave freely or enter freely, and they are being choked. And if you look at what's happening in Gaza right now, you find that 60 to 80 percent of Palestinian children living in, in Gaza live on less than $2 a day and are rarely eating more than one to two meals a day, Jamal. There is this massive humanitarian crisis going on in Gaza right now, and yet this Ofer Gendelman has the audacity to say somehow that these are human shields rather than human beings who are acting towards self-determination, some modicum of dignity and respect to demand that they can march freely and, you know, peacefully anywhere they want. Well, people are marching. Number one, most of these people are unemployed. Most of these people, if not all, are, well, actually, most of them are either, uh, they are descendants of families who were ethnically cleansed from 
the other side of the fence. As well, as, they can as, see their as, homes, as, Jamal. As Israel would say. Well, some of them come from Jaffa and Haifa and Akka and all these places. So they are not. They're trying to explain it as they are trying to invade Israel. They're going home. They they can the see march, the they can see their homes, Jamal. To to return to their homes. At the same time. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is worsening. Why? Because the humanitarian aid is disappearing. That's right. So the very little humanitarian aid, relatively little, when it, you know, uh, when it's compared, um, you know, to the number of people who need it, 1.8 million people, practically. Recently, the United States cut it off. Has suffocated. The United all, Nations, all, right. All the, number one, the United Nations, but also NGOs. That's right. Uh, that used to receive uh, U.S. aid. It's cut. This is this has disappeared. No, I mean the the humanitarian crisis, Jamal, is uh, is really unspeakable, and um, there's lots of blame to go around. I mean, of course, first and foremost, are the political, economic. Uh, uh, stranglehold that uh, the Israelis have put on Gaza for over 10 years now. But the Egyptians have a, a hand to play in this. Obviously, U.S. foreign policy. And then other pl- other players in the Gulf are adding fuel to the fire of the suffering of, of, of Palestinians in Gaza, Jamal, because, you know, Israel is now on peace terms with Egypt and Jordan and is having open negotiations with Gulf countries like UAE and Saudi Arabia. Why are they not stepping up to the plate to stop the carnage, this slaughter, if you will, of Palestinian civilians? Why is that not happening? Well, I don't even expect it to happen. (laughs) Uh, uh, My worry is their role in basically the role they're playing in it's encouraging dirty, yes. and giving the green light for to, the Israelis, for to, do the Israelis to do this. Well, we know that's happening, Jamal. That's part of the larger picture of what's happening in Palestine right now because the combination of you know, the, 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 the Trump signal to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, as well as the openly warm relations between the Israelis and the UAE and, and the and the king of uh, the crown prince and soon to be king of Saudi Arabia gives political and economic cover to the Israelis to expand settlements, to destroy Palestinian sovereignty in Jerusalem, and to crush and destroy and murder Palestinians in Gaza. It's a cover, Jamal. We know this. And all of these individuals, all of these countries are complicit with this kind of depravity that they're practicing. Well, the problem, I mean, you have all these countries, you have Israel on one side, and I can tell you now people also, even within the Palestinians, and this is something very saddening because the division between Fatah and Hamas and so forth, that if you, in in fact, just uh, yesterday, there were some Palestinian writers and intellectuals who have called on members of Fatah uh, the National Council, the Central Committee, and executive and, and executive committee of the Palestine Liberation or- Organization, the PLO, to resign in protest against the Palestinians' authorities' imposition of sanctions on the Gaza Strip. So you have also, uh, and this is what they're saying. I mean, this is uh, I can tell you. Uh, for example, uh, one of the writers, uh, his name is Aziz al-Masri, said that a mass resignation is the most honorable form of protest and at the same time the most difficult message to be directed at the regime or the government. Right. And on Tuesday, Fatah members in Gaza demanded that the PA lift the punitive measures imposed on the Gaza Strip and to pay the salaries of Gaza employees in full and treat them like their counterparts Absolutely. in the occupied West Bank. Absolutely. So you also have this kind of strangulation, strangulation, ongoing strangulation from Israel on one side, from the Egyptian on the other side. And from the PA. From the PA on the other side and from the international community. And, and then you're asking these innocent civilians not to go out on the streets, 
Not to demonstrate. Not to have dignity. Against the brutal occupation. Not, not to have a dignified existence by calling out an oppressor, calling out occupation, calling out apartheid practices. I mean, Jamal, Gaza is a big Bantustan. It is. If, I mean, if you want to know what apartheid smells like, tastes like, sounds like, feels like, go to Gaza. It's one large Bantustan, not that different from the Bantustans that existed in apartheid South Africa. And just like the Bantustans that we have in the West Bank, right? And in Jerusalem, I mean, the chopping up of Palestine, the the kind of cookie cutters, you know, going down all over the West Bank and in Jerusalem right now, it's just devastating to see how Palestinian land is being stolen. Well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your area of expertise and for all our listeners, our co-host, Dr. Jess Ghanem. And you are a renowned (laughs) (laughs) therapist, psychologist. Expert. Expert. In some things. And especially, and you've been to Gaza many times, but recently, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, there has been a report and uh, a report uh, that was released uh, shows that 95% of young people surveyed in Gaza showed deep psychological distress. Yeah. And this report was uh, conducted, I guess, by Save the Children. Yes. And they were saying this Gaza children, this is, this is very recent, 95%. A generation of children in the besieged Gaza Strip are on the brink of a mental health crisis. Right. That's the title of the report. The whole yeah, I, I'm aware of that report. And <laughs> you've been there. You've actually trained uh, psychologists in Gaza at the Gaza Mental Health Clinic. Right, right. So here's the situation, Jamal. We published in the 1990s the first study looking at traumatic stress in Palestinian children in Gaza. This was the first study that came out. This was in the 1990s. Back then, and this is in the 1990s going into the 2000s, we found that 80% of Palestinian children, back then, Jamal, had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So if you look fast forward now, Save the Children did their study, and they're saying that you know, it's gotten to the level of it's. This is beyond a public health crisis, Jamal. This is beyond even the word crisis because we're talking about a context of existence where every day is traumatic, where every day the possibility of your death is is imminent. Every day you're going to have some kind of traumatic exposure, either seeing uh, a loved one either being killed, hurt, maimed. You're seeing violence from the Israelis occurring on a day-to-day basis. And you as a child are being strangled emotionally as well as nutritionally every single day. So this is a report which uh, I wish more people would see, Jamal. And so here are some facts or some data from this report, Save the Children report. They surveyed uh, 150 young adolescents yes. with a median age of 14 and 150 caregivers living in the coastal enclave, of course, of Gaza, found that 95% of children interviewed displayed symptoms such as feelings of depression, yes. hyperactivity, a preference uh, for being alone, and aggression. Many children grew up witnessing three Israeli offensives in 2008 to 2009, 2012, and 2014 that exactly. devastated uh, the Gaza Strip. Furthermore, the 11-year uh, Egyptian-Israeli blockade has severely curtailed the quality of life in Gaza. The youth unemployment and I'm going to repeat that, the youth unemployment in Gaza, and, and, and this is for people who are listening to us in the San Francisco Bay Area where unemployment is below 3%. Yeah, it's about 3% in San Francisco. The youth unemployment in Gaza is at 60%. Uh, I, I expected it to be a little higher. And actually. poverty levels increased from 30 to 50%. 
and at least 68% of the children say they have difficulties sleeping. That's right. 78% consider the single biggest source of fear for them is the sound of warplanes. Absolutely. And this is very consistent with, with you know what we did in our original study also Jamal a long time ago some you know almost 20 years ago is that the sounds of planes and helicopters and anything like that is so traumatizing to these children. And you you have to remember that the wars of 2008, 2009, uh, 2012, 2014 were devastating in Gaza. I mean, the, the amount of people that were killed, maimed, injured, the amount of buildings that were destroyed, the siege of Gaza, Jamal, which for, remember, during those wars, 45 days of no you know, electricity, food, water. I mean, it was really catastrophic. And these kids have grown up now and are growing up having been exposed to trauma unlike what any children anywhere in the world have ever experienced. You compare kids in Gaza to kids in Iraq, to kids in Afghanistan, to kids in Syria even, and tragically, Palestinian children are off the scale when it comes to this traumatic exposure. You could see it, 95%. There's no other place in the world, Jamal, where this percentage of children are suffering like this. And let's put it into context. It's because of the Israeli occupation. 100%. That the reason you have 95% of Palestinian children who experience this level of emotional distress is because of the Israeli occupation, full stop. And the world turns a blind eye. You're absolutely right. We're going to uh, switch gears uh, soon because we have to talk a little bit about some local issues and other issues. Well, I, I want to talk about one thing, Jamal. I was very you know, pleased to see how the Trump administration continues to champion civil rights. <laughs> I was so excited to hear, and I'd like to— Well, well we, we are, we are going to talk about this, but uh, first uh, station identification. Oh, yeah, let's go to that. We, you are listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, and we also welcome our viewers on, on Facebook Live. Uh, but you are absolutely right. I mean, every week, you know, we witness something new. Uh, every week? Every Jamal, day, maybe. How about every hour? You know, how they... How about every hour we hear about some sort of devastation to human rights, civil rights, you know, dignity, I mean, just basic elements of good human behavior. So, so first, first I, I'll, I'll start with something funny, you know, something at least humorous. Uh, yesterday... Uh, did you receive your invitation by the White House to attend the iftar dinner? I, I, <laughs> I think it went to my spam box, Jamal. <laughs> so yesterday, <laughs> basi basically, you know, uh, the White House held an iftar dinner. Which they didn't last year. Yeah, which they didn't last year after much, uh, a lot of criticism. And uh, they kept this. Uh, they kept it secret. They, they they never announced the names of the attendees. Of course not. Uh, and many people, you know, already have said from the Muslim American community that they won't be attending. And when we know, like you know, uh, football stars don't want to attend an invitation. Right. The Warriors uh, right here, who I hope they they are going to be the champions. They won't go. They won't go. And so forth. So, so you know, so they did their own PR campaign saying, talking about this uh, iftar dinner. And of course, we didn't receive an invitation. No. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, those who were invited, I looked at most of those who were invited and who went. Who went? They were from embassies. Uh. Saudi Arabia, of course, UAE, of course, et cetera, and so forth. So it was kind of and Trump speech. He was reading a a script, you know. I mean, here is the guy who said we are banning Muslims, and he's saying, "Oh, this is one of the great religions," and and so forth. Anyway, you can all watch it now online. It's uh, very uh, entertaining. And I actually uh, tweeted, I said, well, Salat uh, al-Taraweeh, uh, you know what Salat al-Taraweeh, 
maybe it will be led by John Bolton, <laughs> you know, or something like this. Some people liked it and some people didn't like it. But then today, Kenneth Marcus this was, is what we need to get to. was just confirmed Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights in Betsy Davis's, uh, Davos' uh, Department of Education. Let's talk and a little the, bit about the, the, Mr. Kenneth Marcus. Yeah, so in the hearing, the guy couldn't even name a simple example of something in Trump's record on civil rights he disagreed with when he was asked a question at the hearing, yet he was confirmed. I mean, the guy doesn't believe in civil rights. Well, it's, it's a little, it's, it's even more uh, complicated than that. Uh, Jamal. Kenneth Marcus is an Islamophobe. He is a well-known um, uh, advocate of uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. He, from an academic standpoint, has been on the forefront of supporting the apartheid policies of Israel and its you know, occupation of Palestinian land. The guy is a known hater and uh, in addition to having hateful and espousing hateful rhetoric against Palestinians, also being an Islamophobe, is given this exalted, important title of the assistant for basically civil rights for the Department of Education with Betsy DeVos, who has her own problems as a, as a cabinet secretary. Or to pick somebody so antagonistic to equality and civil rights, to head such an important department within, you know, the uh, this this you know within the, this government within the, you know, the educational department is really outrageous, Jamal. I mean, this is an attack on every child in the United States who's a little different, and if that child happens to be Palestinian or Arab or Muslim or. A you know, a child of color, they're really in for uh, a rough ride for these next few years. Yeah, and so I'm actually, I mean, still I was shocked. I wasn't. You wasn't. You yeah. weren't. No, that I he wasn't. was confirmed with all the record and all the statements. He, no, he he still was confirmed. Yeah, yeah. And, and with all the campaign by, by civil rights groups. Well, ACLU, Center for Constitutional Rights, every single organization in the United States with, with a known track record for equality and who, who have been committed to civil rights came out against his nomination, including the Southern Poverty Law Center, Jamal, who, you know, basically said, you know, why, you know, you cannot... Uh, basically, uh, you know, approve the nomination of this guy. And the, there's, the, there's also the leadership of the Conference of Civil and Human Rights, which is a coalition of more than 200 national organizations, came, came out at, flatly against uh, Marcus's uh, nomination. He has never enforced civil rights law. He is not committed to protecting the rights of all children, which is really what this is about, Jamal. It's really a position that is dedicated to making sure that all children within our educational system are treated fairly and equally. And every single civil rights and human rights organization in the United States basically came out against this nomination. So basically, in short, the Trump administration it continues to surround itself with Islamophobes. Pro-Israel Islamophobes. Anti-Palestinian. Anti Anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim. Basically, it's, it's, it's the kind of nomination that one makes, Jamal, if, if you want to thumb your nose in the face of uh, civil rights. You know, this is coming on the, you know, 50th anniversary of the assassination of, you know, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, which is, you know, kind of interesting to think back on the times when this country, the United States, was in the throes of an attempt to try to heal uh, from the effects of just, 
you know, hundred you know, hundred years plus of brutal discrimination against African Americans and, and other communities of color. And now we have in the in the civil rights division of the education department of the United States, we we have basically someone who advocates the the opposite of, of these rights. So buckle up, Jamal. I don't know what to tell you, but I worry about every child in the United States who happens to be a little different, who happens to look a little different, who maybe has, you know, ideas of their own. It's going to be a tough ride for the next few years. It sure will. You're listening again to Arab Talk on KPOO, San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Uh, We're going through some of the uh, breaking stories, uh, getting back to actually another story in uh, Israel, uh, you know, a new one, indictments against two former Israeli soldiers charged with killing an unarmed Palestinian teenager will be dropped. This is what the Israeli prosecutor declared this week. The two former soldiers whose names are under gag order had been charged for the reckless and negligent use of a firearm. Imagine. In other words, killing a Palestinian child. A 16-year-old Samir Awad near the village of Budros. Yeah. They killed him in 2013. Awad was shot in the back eight times. So imagine if it's reckless, right? You have one accidental shot. This poor young man was shot in the back eight times by soldiers who had been lying in ambush near a hole in by the the uh, apartheid wall he was not armed armed nor did he pose a threat to anyone and jamal, they just shot sh- him in the back but jamal when you shoot a human being in the back i mean notwithstanding the cowardice of it I mean, a lot of the police shootings, you know, against unarmed African-Americans in this country, these are African-Americans who do get shot in the back. I mean, these are willful, negligent, depraved acts. When you shoot a 16-year-old in the back, means that he's running away. It means that he's not a threat. No, it means th- that you are killing and murdering someone in cold blood. So the, so the Israeli occupation army claimed that Aoud was attempting to damage part of the uh, the apartheid wall, which they call the separation barrier, when the soldiers opened fire. The case has been ongoing since 2015 when Israeli authorities, after a more than two-year delay, finally they indicted the soldiers. So the, the, they had, you know... They basically, they had no excuse. They indicted the soldiers. So why, after three years of legal proceedings, did the prosecutor decided to drop the charges? This is this has uh, been ongoing for two years. The soldiers admitted that they had enough evidence and proof that they shot this poor young man in the back eight times. And so, you know, they have their selective enforcement of the law uh they have all the evidence that he was no threat and yet they're now letting them uh walk free well of course that's that's apartheid justice i think we should let our listeners know about for those who are interested in sports though jamal there is a little piece of i don't i don't know if we'd call this good news but interesting news you know we're getting close to world cup time right so, so football, soccer is a big sport. The Israelis attempt to whitewash their apartheid clothes frequently by engaging in sporting events all over the world, right? That's right. So Argentina with arguably the, I'm going to say the second best uh, soccer player in the world because I believe that Mohamed Salah is probably the best soccer player in the world, the Egyptian. But, He's good, but let's say Lion, Lionel Messi is, you know, considered probably the best soccer player in the world, and uh, he went to Palestine last year. Anyways, Argentina, their national team, was supposed to go to Tel Aviv for a friendly in anticipation of FIFA, and 
because of the BDS boycott, divest, sanctioning movement that is very active in Argentina. The pressure was put on the Argentine uh, soccer club to cancel the meeting, and I'm very happy and proud to say that the uh, Argentine uh, soccer team has canceled their match with the Israeli national soccer team. So in protest, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Now, the Israelis have spun it, Jamal, as you know. Guess well, how do you think they've spun it? Well, yeah, that's why I was, I was going to talk about this. Uh, of course, there were calls uh, for the Argentinian government or the Argentinian National Football Association to... Uh, uh, asking them not to participate in this, uh, what they turned as a friendly match in Jerusalem, by the way. Oh, it wasn't Tel Aviv, it was in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, yeah. And, and this is important because in Jerusalem, and, and I'll talk about this later on, but basically uh, there were, I guess, millions of, of calls. Uh, millions, yeah. Asking them not to go. So uh, they, they are, the Argentinian national soccer team announced on Wednesday uh, it was canceling that friendly match against Israel's national team, uh, you know, amid political pressure. And now they're saying that they had some death threats. That's the Israeli spin. Yeah, they said yeah. there were death <laughs> threats that were made. Um, you know, of course, you know, I don't believe that. I don't believe it for and, a second. And, uh, you know, that there were death threats. And that's why they are uh, protecting their players and they don't want them to go there. You know, from the Palestinian uh, perspective and their supporters, uh, they, the you know, Palestinians, they say that the decision to withdraw from the game was seen as the biggest victory yet for the BDS movement, the Absolutely. boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Absolutely. And they praised uh, Argentine, uh, the team, for taking a, a stand against Israel. Now, here are two things. One, number one, outside this whole thing with the BDS, and and I'm, if, if, you, if you're, we call it here soccer, the biggest game in the world is football, right? Football is not the American football, what we refer to it as soccer. And, and everyone in the football world, world, fans, and anyone who follows this, know that... Jerusalem, Bitar, Jerusalem football team. This is the Israeli team in Jerusalem. Is the most racist team ever. Full stop. Full stop. Absolutely. And they attract the most vile fans. I mean, we're talking about not only the team. Not the fans. But attracts these settlers from all these settlements right. surrounding Jerusalem. That's right. Who go day in day out, and I tell you, this is this is their history. It, you can watch it. You can Google it. Just Google, bit, <laughs> to our listeners and viewers, Google Bitar Jerusalem racism. You'll find videos. Yeah, it's pretty vicious. Vicious videos from these fans calling African American players kushis. That's the Hebrew word, which is basically the N word, right? Yeah. And I'm talking about. If you are even an Israeli Ethiopian, that's what they call you. If you come from a different country and you happen to be a person of color, this is what they call you. They attack Palestinians and Palestinians with the Israeli citizenship who happen to be, by the way, some of the best players in Israel. Exactly. A few years ago, the football team in Sakhnin won the national championship. Oh, a Palestinian team. Yes, they won the national, <laughs> they won the national championship. They are, uh, they are also racist against Muslims, so they've attacked players who came from Eastern Europe and wherever in friendly matches. No one, no one wants to play in their playground. No one wants to be there. And, and that's why it was in, in a big surprise that Argentin, the Argentinian national team first accepted the invitation to begin with. Right. They have. They were suspended by FIFA for I don't know for how long. They were taken outside that organization to p penalize them because of the racism. Because of the racism, right? Because of their Islamophobia, 
And because of the team itself. And the fans. By the way, the team temporarily, I don't know if it's still ongoing, when when, when Donald Trump was elected, they've changed it to Trump instead of Bitar Jerusalem. They called it Bitar Trump Jerusalem. You know, this, they are fa- big fans of Donald Trump. Of course they are. And they attract not only the owners are racist, the fans are racist. They attract racist players. No one wants to play against them. So, so <laughs> you know, I mean, to just say that there were threats, the threats are from their fans. Absolutely. They, no Palestinian anyway. How can you threaten the Argentinian players in when if, if, let's say, assume they participated? Well, let me tell you something. Palestinians are scared to set foot in the stadium. They'll kill them. Right. They'll lynch them. That's right. And you're telling me that you are scared because of threats made against the Argentinian team. So it's nonsense. It is nonsense. That's number one. Number two, uh, many of the Argentinian, including their star player, if you look at, if you research it, many of them made public and not so public statements that denouncing basically in support of Palestinians in the past absolutely and denouncing the state of apartheid and discrimination I think one of them if I'm paraphrasing he said something like about you know uh, he wouldn't want to play in a country where children are being killed yeah so you are absolutely right about this Israeli Hasbara machine and spin trying to say yeah uh, they're scared because of Palestinian threats. Believe me, the the threat is from Israel. Uh, the the people who are getting killed on a daily basis are Palestinians. People, more than a hundred people, have been killed. Who is the threat? Well, the the threat is is are clearly the the Israeli fans, who, and and you're right, Jamal. I mean, the history of this team in the stadium and the fans that go to the stadium. Is, is is legendary in, in the football world all over the world. And the thing is, is that the FIFA world and the world of international soccer football knows far better than, than most Americans, unfortunately, about the brutal racist policies of the Israeli government. And a lot of these FIFA teams are well known for coming out in support of Palestinian you know, rights and have had... Watch watch most of the games in Europe. Watch the Celtic team in... uh, Right, in Ireland. They, they, they They are... Put it this way, if you go to a soccer match in Europe, you probably see more Palestinian flags than you will see flags from the host nation. I mean, this is, this is the irony in all of this. I mean, uh, this country, in terms of, of being so far behind, everywhere else in the world on confronting the brutality of Israeli racism. Um, every, the rest of the world is on board with it. I mean, maybe Guatemala, maybe Nicaragua, Jamal, their presidents now who were illegally elected according to recent, uh, recent information about the elections there are going to move their embassies from, <laughs> you know, from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because they're being paid and they want to curry favor with uh, Donald Trump. But nobody else is going to do this. Nobody is on board with the U.S.'s policy towards uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. The rest of the world, Jamal, is actually politically spot on when it comes to the question of Palestine. You're absolutely right. Uh, we have a few minutes left, so we, wa- we thought we would have been minutes. able to make an announcement about Something oh. local about the mayors. We don't know who the next. Right we don't know who the next mayor is going to be in in uh, San Francisco. But it seems that at least for the next several days, the San Francisco Department of Elections will have updated the results. It's less than one percent. And difference. because as of now, uh, for our local listeners and those who care about the mayoral race right here in San Francisco, less than a percentage point separates the top. Two candidates, Mark Leno, with 50.42% of the vote, and London Breed with 49.58%. And uh, the ballots keep some uh, absentee ballots right. keep coming. Right. And those postmarked on 
or before election day are valid as long as they arrive by Friday. So they have to wait till tomorrow. Still, there are there right. are votes in the mail, and I think something like thirteen thousand. They expect thirteen thousand more ballots to come. But imagine well, thirteen thousand is enough to put it up to change. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. yeah. So so. Sorry, we cannot make any new announcements or updates. Uh, we're, we're not allowed to give political endorsements No, no we don't. Yeah, we don't. But it's it's a uh, – they're basically – if it's a very tight race, it's one of the tightest, I think, races for the mayor. Right. In a long time right but, here. But and along it's the, too close to call. But along those lines, Jamal, as long as we're talking about local and, politics. And then, yes, and then the next thing is – of course, everyone here in San Francisco, they're again excited with Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, who was the former mayor, uh, now he's he moved a step closer to become uh, the governor of California. But also, I wasn't going to talk about that. I was going to talk about, I think people are more excited about, about the... Golden State Warriors. Well, we have to end on that, Jamal, because <laughs> we have to have a shout out to the from the Bay to the rest of the world. And people who know me know how much I really dislike Cleveland, you know, because I grew up in Detroit. <laughs> we the, we the right. I I love LeBron, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's he's not, the one. Let's not go the there. One. Let's not go well, there because uh, I don't love his LeBron. Performance is unbelievable. But it doesn't matter. Because this is a well, I enjoy watching, even though I I support the local no. team. But you cannot say that he is not the king of the basketball. Okay, if just game now. But I will take Kevin Durant over LeBron James any mm. day. So this is a shout out to our to our Warriors who are three to zero over the Cleveland Cavaliers who looked. So defeated, I mean, I like to refer to Kevin Durant as the assassin. No, he that's was, what they call him. Yeah, strategic, hitting threes from beyond 30 feet, Jamal. It was just a masterpiece. And uh, frankly, you know, Cleveland and LeBron deserve to lose um, because of some of their escapades with trying to take out our players what they did with uh, Draymond a few years ago when Draymond got thrown out in 2016 finals and we ended up, we were ahead 3-1 and lost, you know, 4-3. So there's no love lost between the Bay and Cleveland. So let's shout out for our team, of course. It is a shout out. Does it mean that you don't respect the best player in the game now? LeBron James or King James. <laughs> on that, on that will, bombshell. <laughs> we will end our show. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We'll talk to you next week.